It's our first anniversary podcast. This is no time to start planning. Okay. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday, dear Cood Street. Happy birthday to us. And good morning, Gary. You're recording this? Okay. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday, Jonathan. It's not your birthday. It's not my birthday. But it's the Cood Street podcast's first birthday. It is indeed. There should be cake and flowers, or at least breakfast and champagne, but... We shall have to make do with, well, in my case, a glass of water, and I suspect yours a nice glass of red. Oh, I totally forgot to... At some point during the podcast, I'm going to leave the room and open my (laughs) bottle of red. But we'll see how far I get before then. (laughs) Fair enough. I mean, I I should tell you, I I actually listened, in fact, was listening when you called me this morning, Gary, to our Mm -hmm. first podcast. Our first podcast? I should do that. What a clunky old thing it is. And it was breakfast time on Saturday morning. And yet we talked about, Gary, we talked about how you pick a book to review for Locus. Hmm. And tell me if that does not sync nicely with exactly what you're talking about discussing. Um, well, we were talking about one of the things that I wanted to raise is a mutual friend of ours who has now become a listener to the podcast, a helpless slave to the podcast, <laughs> I would like to think. Yes said that it's after two or three of them, he had no problem at all. Now, he knows you and I both well. He had no problem yeah. at all in detecting what our biases are. And, uh, and, 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 and I, hope that's, I hope our biases are absolutely naked to the world because I don't think we've done anything to disguise them. But connected with that was a point that he was making to one of his authors. Yeah. Um, well, he will know who we're talking about when he hears this, but it's a publisher. It's somebody who's a publisher. One of his authors <clears throat> was complaining about the lack of objecting, obje- objective reviews in the field. Yeah. And, and our friend said, as I think an intelligent publisher yeah. would say, an objective review is not a review. No. It's a, it's a report. You yeah. Know, what, 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 what does anybody mean when they think there should be an objective review? Well, I, I think anybody who thinks that you can talk objectively about books is really not thinking very clearly about what's happening because after all anybody who's talking in the field about books surely is talking as a reader which is an entirely subjective experience you know i mean yes you might have done some additional research yes you may have read more widely but surely that's what we are gary yeah absolutely we're readers and i don't think any of the writers that that you and i are biased toward uh would want it any other way Mm. Um, I mean, I, I mean the, the only thing you can do, and I mean, I, I guess this comes in with with John Clute's sort of, you know, you know, what is it, thingy candor, uh, uh, sort of uh, ex- excessive candor, excessive the, candor, the protocol of excessive candor. You can be honest about your biases and prejudices, and I think, <laughs> you know, you can try to make sure that the biases and prejudices are are responses to the work you're reading rather than to something else. I mean, I can think mm-hmm. of a couple of writers whose work I cannot read because I know them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I allow that and I actually try to manage around it in those areas where I need to, you know, uh, there's one person who I shan't name who I went to a reading and they had a really annoying voice, nice person, annoying voice. And all I could hear when I read their work afterward was the annoying voice. Couldn't read their work anymore. Um, doesn't stop me sort of saying nice, you know, trying to mm. be, support their work, but it just those things happen. We are fickle people. We are human beings, not um, machines who are coming up with some objective assessment points. How would you even do it? I, I can't imagine why anybody would want their book written about uh, according to some grid. I suppose, uh, you know, is, is the plot well-developed? Are the characters well-developed? That completely is contextual. Mm. There are some very effective works of fiction, and... My, my, we've talked about this a couple of times. My favorite example is always A.E. Van Vogt, who doesn't, mm-hmm. develop, who doesn't know how to write, doesn't develop characters. <laughs> His plots are completely psychotic. Yep. Uh, and he's fun to read. Yes. I'm sorry, he's fun. <laughs> well, I've certainly read stuff where I think, or seen things. I've, I've read books where I've gone, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a really good book, but I really enjoyed it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's, it is a subjective thing. Now, whether you can, and this is a very hard thing, and... You know, my, my first response to publisher X's comment that he's deter- he has detected our biases is mm-hmm. that he's full of bulldust. Because I know publisher X and I like him very much, but he is full of bulldust. Um, mm. And the other thing is that I'm not sure that I could 
consistently and accurately state my prejudices. So I think it's interesting. I mean, there's a little part of me that wants to go to somebody else and say, okay, tell me what my pre- prejudices are so that mm. I can test them and see whether I think you're right. The prejudices that I had reported to me yeah. were that we, yeah. we essentially like science fiction better than fantasy. We essentially like literary fiction better than, I guess, formula, series fiction, whatever you call uh, and uh, that we tend to um, admire people who write well, which is an, an accusation I'm willing to accept. I, mean, <laughs> I think uh, I think I'm going to call bulldust. Actually, I think that's mm-hmm. load bulldust because what publisher X is hearing is one of the great reviewer dilemmas, right? And we mm-hmm. both work have worked as reviewers as well as critics, um, and that is that there's. There are those books about which there is is just nothing to say, though they're enjoyable. And then there are those books about which there is something to say. And so, you can, you know, if I read and enjoy the new Jim Butcher novel, which I may do, mm-hmm. there's nothing I can really say about it other than I enjoyed it. Well, mm-hmm. this is one of the issues that a major publisher, possibly the major publisher of, of, of science fiction in the United States, has said to me repeatedly, which is, why don't you review author X? And my response is always, you don't need to. Mm. With, with the readership that particular author has, a notice that the book is there is all the readers need. Now, if that particular author does something which is radically new or different or, or stunningly unexpected, mm. then, then we might pay attention to that. But essentially, if somebody is delivering re- reliably uh, very good performances that people have seen before, all the reader needs to know is that it's there. Yes, exactly. Um, I think that's th- true. Th- there are exceptions to that. There are exceptions mm. to that. And here's a good exception to that. A good okay. exception to that is Stephen King. Yeah. Stephen King occasionally writes, I mean, if, if Stephen King writes a novel like Cell, for example, mm. which I read a chunk of, I read enough of it to know, okay, he's doing that again. Yeah. Um, St- when Stephen King writes what I think is an excellent novella, and I, for some reason, tend to like his novellas better, sometimes I'm really surprised. Yeah. Sometimes I'm thinking, this, this, uh, he's written some brilliant short stories. He has. He has. I and, think he, and you have to acknowledge that. Yeah, no, I mean, you do have to acknowledge that. I think the other thing that I want to say is that when he says that we like science fiction better than fantasy, I don't for a second attempt to assess that for yourself, but I'm skeptical mm. that it's true of me. Um, what I do think is that I'm wary of epic fantasy simply because it takes too much time to read. You know, I mean, I was having this conversation with somebody else, and I, actually between you and I, I completely forget now, but... Uh, how do you know? How do you go about assessing things when the standard unit of measure is 600 pages, and they come in three and five book sets? I mean, I just read the new Daniel Abraham novel, right? Right. Abram came along handful, full, you know, what half a dozen years ago, wrote a fantastic story for John Cleamer that you may remember. Uh, yes, I remember. and Lord Iron or something it was called. Fantastic story. Yeah. Loved it. Right. And then he wrote this sequence of novels that I confess I've not read, The Long Price Quartet, which is supposed to be great and revolutionary and everything else. So along came this new book, The Dragon's Path. It's just out from orbit. Got a lovely cover. It looks great. Yeah. Read it. Right. Really enjoyed it. Right. It's, and, and I find out now it's one of five. Okay, fair enough. They come up yeah. once a year. I'll keep them. And if I get excited, I'll bug Daniel and see if he'll email me a copy of the next one because he's just about finished it, apparently. Uh, but the truth is, there's not much to say about it. Uh, I don't. I don't think. I think it's a fairly traditional epic fantasy. It's a very well done tr- traditional epic fantasy, but mm-hmm. it's you know there's not a lot that's incredible that I need to worry about. You know, you know the, 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 that's incredibly different, I guess, that I need to talk about. There's some nice use of character. I was worried if it was going to be sexist, but it turned out that the one major female character in the book who was pretending to a boy stops and grows and is great. So that's all good. But there's not that much to say about it per se. And I even heard Abraham being interviewed by somebody else on another podcast and he's an interesting guy and, and all that kind of thing. But I felt like they were struggling to find something to say about this standard piece of fantasy as good an example as it is. So, you know, there's that as well. You're looking for something different. I mean, it's easy. Oh, I don't say easy. It's the wrong term. It, it, you can find things to say about the new, uh, Michael Swanwick, Dargeron's surplus novel, right? Or Dargeron's surplus novel. Mm-hmm. But it's harder about, something like that and also i mean what what do you call fantasy i mean quite often and i don't want to get all kind of nerdy kind of definitional with people quite often um it's not straightforward 
shall we say. You know, some I mean, uh, some stuff slide all over the place definition-wise. They're closer to, to traditional fantasy. They're further away. You know, and I'd like to think, and I'm arrogant enough to say that I feel I am, that we're all more complicated readers than that. I think that when he was referring to fantasy, in complete unfairness to him, which I have no compunctions about, yeah. uh, the, uh, the reaction he was talking about was a reaction to what he as a publisher sees as the fantasy market. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about is something which very successfully, possibly, addresses the fantasy market. I read a lot of books like that when I was mm. reading for the World Fantasy Awards, as I'm sure, sure. you did as well. Yeah. That doesn't mean what you or I might think of as fantasy. Yeah. Uh, when we talked uh, very enthusiastically, and my enthusiasm is unflagged about Joe Walton's, among others, mm, that's a fantasy it. novel. It's a fantasy it novel is. about science fiction, but it's definitely a fantasy novel. It is, it is. Uh, we've had Jeff Ford, who writes fantasy, uh, but he doesn't write epic fantasies. Uh, people, I, I, There are people that I like. I have, no, I have no problem with telling people I like Kelly Link, I like Mary Rickard, I like Margot Lanigan, I like Jeff Ford, many of whom are short fiction writers. Mm. And it may be that you can do more interesting things. I wonder, here's, here's something, a completely uh, irrational connection between two disparate things. I mentioned to you before we started recording that I'm going to be on a radio program here in the mm, States. Sure, yeah. That's nothing to do with um, science fiction and fantasy. But last night I was reading two books that they mailed to me. One is a book called The Use and Abuse of Literature by a Harvard professor named, I think, Marjorie Garber. Mm -hmm. And the other was a new edition of Alexis de Tocqueville's Letters from America in 1831. Yeah. And, okay. What de Tocqueville noticed, first of all, uh, in 1831, arriving in New York, is that Americans think of everything in terms of making money. It's a merchant economy. It's, as he put it, it's a merchant culture. It's a culture that talks about mm. how to make things and sell things and so forth. Meanwhile, I'm reading that, and then I'm reading in this Marjorie Garber book, where she's talking about the uh, survey that was done by the National Endowment for the Humanities back in 2001 that showed that Americans are reading less and less and less, and what they're reading is Harry Potter, yeah. uh, Lord of the Rings. She mentioned Sidney Sheldon, which is about 30 years out of date, but that's okay. And I thought, well, maybe there's something, maybe there's a connection between this. Mm -hmm. Maybe what happens with American readers of literature is that they're doing exactly what de Tocqueville says. They're turning literature into a market. We're very good at making markets for literature. You know, we really made uh, a mystery novel market before anybody else did. We made a science fiction market mm -hmm. before anybody mm -hmm. else did. And if you're in that market mindset, which publishers need to be to survive, yes. then you think of literature in terms of markets. And if you think of fantasy in terms of markets, you think two things. You think big trilogies, epic fantasies, sure. or you think urban fantasies with teenage vampires somewhere in rural Washington. Yeah. Uh, neither of which really interests me because the markets are defined. You can do mm -hmm. interesting different things in them, but but essentially uh, you're not reinventing the field. Fantasy becomes uh, uh, a thing you write within rather yeah. than a thing you use. I can see that. Uh, and what interests me about fantasy writers are people who use it in, in different creative ways. Mm -hmm. Or in the case of Swanwick, who's my favorite example, people who might use mainstream literary illusions. They might use surrealism. They might use science fiction. They might use fantasy. They might use historical fiction. And that's what I find exciting. It's when some, sure. Now, the problem, with that, the problem with that, obviously, as every publisher and editor and agent knows, is that it's hard to find a market for it. Yeah. Um, and so when, I, when, when he says, I don't like fantasy, I will... Uh, I will agree with your bulldust metaphor, which I've never heard before, but fine, uh, if you want to call it that. That it's he's talking about a completely different way of looking at literature than you and I are. Talking I think about. I think he is, and I understand why. The other thing I'd say as well is that you and I have both between us been reading for quite a long time. True, and I went through a very a reasonably long phase of reading exactly what. That publisher is talking about. I mean, I read more than a dozen novels a piece by Raymond Feist and David Eddings and probably Tad Williams. And I've, mm -hmm. you know, I have read long, I mean, I've read, I read probably eight or nine of Catherine Kurtz's epic fantasies. And oh I, my mean, goodness. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Darren I books, I got hooked on them at one point. Uh, I read a whole bunch of uh, Maren Zimmer Bradley's ones as well, uh, which were along that sort of a line. And I mean, I, I mean I've the only thing, thing I, I read all of the Donaldsons up till the the you know the most recent set. I certainly haven't. I mean, I, I haven't read any Brooks or Goodkind, or though I did try Jordan and Goodkind. So it's it's. I don't like. To, I I balk at being told that I'm 
they're outside my taste. And I realize that if you if he were here, this mystery publisher X, <laughs> he would not be criticizing us. He would just be observing. You know, be saying, "I'm aware that that's where you are." Um, uh, he he might, from a marketing point, rend, you know, seek to render us irrelevant to the universe, which is his prerogative. But uh-huh. um, I think he really isn't reading our taste that accurately, in truth. Uh, and partly because you know, there's there's also a little part of me that sort of, uh, uh, I'm that little that, that voice in the, in the life of Brian going, "I'm an individual." Yes, right. <laughs> well, yes, you're all individuals. Uh, but th- there's a there's a another factor that enters into this, and that is, um, it, it, and it's hard not to say not to sound a little bit. I I don't know. Elitist might not be the right word. Mm. I didn't read as much as you did. I probably read the first volume of a lot of these things. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I've, I've I've done this. We, I've, I've done this fairly regularly. If somebody there's a new fantasy series. I'll try the first volume of it. Yes. And very few cases do I get beyond the first volume. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there are some cases. One recent case is the Paul Park series, the Princess of Romania mm-hmm. series. Another case, the classic case, maybe for all. Uh, readers of, of of this stripe was was Gene Wolfe's book of the New Sun, mm. especially that because that was the first one. At the end of each of those books, I thought this is not going any place that I can predict. Mm-hmm. This is different. You know, this is somebody who's used the template and is going in some way that I can't figure out. And if I can't figure out at the end of a first book, I'm not talking about the plot. I'm talking yeah. about the way you're using the materials of fantasy, the way you're using the materials of literature. Sure, sure. And if I get really intrigued, then yeah, I'll go on and read the second and the third yep. and the fourth volume. Yep. Now, in defense of Gene Wolfe, or maybe in just as, as, as an account, that was you know clearly conceived as one massive novel that would have been unpublishable in a single volume when he yeah, yeah. was publishing it. Um, and it works that way. If you, if you look at the whole book of the New Sun, and I, I didn't read the third trilogy, uh, the uh, the on green uh, the, the on greens waters and so forth, mm. but. Um, but there was a sense in reading that that this is somebody inventing something completely new. I recognize the materials, but I don't recognize the strategy. Yeah. And that will keep me going. Okay. If I see somebody, no matter how brilliant it is, doing another version of Tolkien, and, okay, this time, okay, the orcs, uh, in, in, instead of orcs, we've got puppies. Um, <laughs> and, and I yep. figure out, okay, orcs equals puppies. I figure, I don't need to read the next three volumes. I get it. Puppies, orcs, fine, I'm done. <laughs> And everybody has some cleverly cleverly named version of the horse people of the plains kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. Because you got to have well, you know, the same. Since you mentioned that, another another series, and that gets into the issue of science fiction series. And science fiction, in general, is probably less series addicted than fantasy is. Would that mm. be a fair statement? Do you think? I I, um, I don't know. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sign up for that one, Gary. I think that's a bit courageous. I think if you look back in the history of the field, there's an awful lot of science fiction series. But let, let let's say maybe for the the sake of discussion. Well, I was, since since the big, I mean the the big market for for novels and trilogies. I mean there are lots and lots of series of novellas. There's the Foundation trilogy. There's stuff that goes back. But yeah. there's a, there are these things that fall in between. And I this is one of the things that I, I will be grateful to our friend Charles for. Um, Susie McKee Charnas began publishing what seemed to be a very influential and powerful series with a book called Walk to the End of the World. Yep, yep. And she wrote three of the novels. Um, and in some ways, those novels, I still think, ought to be more widely read than they are. I mean, yep. they are, uh, we were talking last week about Joanna Russ. Sure. Next, next to Joanna Russ, the first couple of volumes of Susie Charnas's, uh, what was then a trilogy, were some of the angriest, most intense feminists fantasy slash science fiction novels I had read, mm-hmm. <clears throat> except I'd never read them. Yeah. Um, and when uh, the fourth volume came out, and this is one of the other things that unfortunately happens with series, it happened to Joe Haldeman, it's happened to Susie Charnas, yeah. there's a gap of maybe a decade between the mm. first three novels and the final novel. The final novel was just brilliant. It, it completely, uh, I, I, I had what Charles made me do was he said, you can't read this unless you go back and read the first three novels. And I had my usual argument with Charles. You're asking me to read four <laughs> novels so I can review one. And he said and, yes. And so he wouldn't have to, yeah. So he wouldn't have to, exactly. And I went back and I read the first three powerful stuff. Uh, by the third volume, I thought, I think I know what she's doing here. Years later, she comes up with a fourth volume, which completely reconsiders everything in ways I thought was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Uh, equally feminist as the earlier ones, 
but a much more sophisticated, a much more complex idea of, I mean, essentially what happens is that the, you mentioned horsewomen, which yeah. is one of the things that are featured in this. When they finally, essentially win the victory, they start doing the same things. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I thought, that's really courageous. Yeah. That's really gutsy to do. And unfortunately, the fourth book didn't have the impact it could have because yeah. by the time it appeared, nobody really was remembering the first three. Yeah. Uh, the Joe Haldeman example was the World's Trilogy, the, the last volume of which came out a decade after the first mm-hmm. two, I think. Yeah. And uh, it's a brilliant trilogy, but it, it, it sort of disappeared because of uh, the fact that it was published in segments like that. Yeah. And then the third problem, which is one we see happening all around us now, is that you have sometimes very interesting, very talented writers who sign up for a trilogy. By the third volume of the trilogy, they get dropped. Oh, and then yeah, you've yeah. got, yeah, and then then you've got a novel which might actually make a brilliant whole out of the trilogy, and nobody will publish it. Yeah, or it might get published years later, or it might or get published. They struggle. Later. I mean, that was kind of what happened with Crowley with the Egypt books, wasn't exactly. it? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Crowley's last, the last Egypt book, uh, Endless Things, uh, came out from Small Beer, and bless them for doing it. Absolutely, absolutely. It did did cross my mind. Well, first of all, I can think of another example of a feminist writer well no that's wrong a science fiction writer a female science fiction writer who brilliantly reimagined a series many years later and that would have to be Le Guin with Tahano um, yeah. a book which I adore I think is just I, I never gelled with the Wizard of Earthsea but I adore Tahano I think it's a fantastic book um, I well the, I think yeah. Earthsea but you know what Tahano made me like Earthsea a lot better than I had before okay I'll, if I can, I'll go back and read it. I plan to. I actually went off and sort of bought an extra copy of it so I could do that, so I probably should. Um, the thing that crossed my mind while we were talking about this was, is the thing that we don't value as readers, the pair of us, immersiveness? Is that the difference? Immersiveness in, in Farrah Mendelssohn's sense of Oh, I don't know. I don't read any science oh, fiction you, criticism, uh, Gary. I have no you, idea what Farrah yeah. means. Well, she, she, I mean, immersive fantasy is one where you are thrust into the fantasy world completely. No, that's uh, not that what I mean. No, okay. no, I don't. No, what I mean is that sense of immersion in the world that you get when you have five books to go and you're you're just lost in it, and that's the attraction of the story rather than anything else, or as much as anything. Oh, else. I don't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not that kind of a reader. Yeah. I mean, even with Lord of the Rings, which I like better than you did. Absolutely. Um, yes. Uh, and I still think it's one of the brilliant works of literature of the 20th century, I was, you know, I did, by the time the Silmarillion came out, I said, okay, you know, I've been there. I don't really know what the taxi fares are in uh, Middle Earth. I mean, I don't, (laughs) all the stuff that was in the appendices to the Silmarillion, I thought, I don't want to be the kind of person that's interested in this. (laughs) Well, I have to say, yes, even before I, I mean, I remember I, I enjoyed reading The Fellowship of the Ring, and I enjoyed mostly reading Two Towers, and at some point, sort of, I, at that point, I, I was had Return of the King kind of to go, a book to this day I've never finished reading, and I looked across at the the book of books of lost tales, which had been published, you know, mm. uh, the the filing cabinet of doom, and <laughs> kind of went, no, I don't want to ever know, I don't want to read the Silmarillion. I mean, you know, he didn't really finish it in his lifetime or whatever. Uh, I don't want to read any of the other things. I've got no criticism of anyone who does. But I don't. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not what I'm into. And even for a series of books that I've loved, when they come up later with a concordance of, I'm not the guy to get on board. I don't really want to know the minutiae like that. Uh, I know mm-hmm. people who, who can tell you, very smart, interesting people, who could tell you the cab fare that, that Severian, the torturer, might have pa- pa- play, paid on the way from here to there. And they've worked out by implying a hundred different things the color of the hair of the woman that his mother met four generations ago she was going to the shop to get a a, a loaf of bread mm. and you're like hey that's fine for them but that's not me either i'm i want to pick up a book and enjoy it and more and more what i want to do is i want to pick up a short book and enjoy it i think well i i don't know that i would necessarily say that about a short book because there are books that i dreaded getting into uh, because mm. I didn't know much about them. A good example is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, yeah. uh, which is, what, 900 pages long yes, or something yes, like yes, that. Yes. And, and, I, and it's the kind of thing, okay, here's the other thing. The way you review things may make a difference whether you're on a deadline, because I've got 900 pages to read and maybe three or four other books to read in the next yeah. three weeks. Yeah. I adored it. I yes. thought it was brilliant. 
It, it just absolutely drew me through it from beginning to end. Yeah. And I, I, I had known uh, that uh, Susanna was, was an excellent writer because the novellas, the short stories that had appeared in, um, uh, in Patrick Nielsen Hayden's Starlight series. But I didn't think that it would be that elegantly structured that you just get pulled through it that yeah, way. Yeah, that's and I, I love it when that happens. The most enjoyable thing I think I do as a reader is picking up something which I'm dreading and just absolutely falling into it. Yes. And yes. I'm in that, but I'm in that world. Now, to defend, to, to agree with what you're saying, I'm in that world partly because the world is very detailed and seductive and wonderful and so forth, but also there's an arc that tells me I'm going to get out of this world at some point. Oh, yes. And that's... But that sense of loss is part of what makes, I think, a great fantasy novel. That when it's gone, it should be gone. Yes, and I think you don't want to dwell in it forever. I yeah. Think. Well, I, I, I think ask yourself how many times as well you've picked up the first book of a series, and not continued it, even though you enjoyed the series or that enjoyed that book, mm. which happens to be quite regularly. I, I, I can look oh, yeah. at several now. I'm sitting in the study. I can look around the books, and I just think, you know, I kind of I knew what it was, and I didn't want to sign up for eight books. Yeah, I, well, I, I had that feeling. I, I give you an example. I, I read the first four books in a series and gave up, and mm -hmm. that was Rogers Elasny's Amber series. Yep. I just loved them. I just ate them up when they came out. And by the time I'd finished the third or fourth one, I realized he he knows what he's doing now, and he can go on and do this forever. And the one time I talked to him, um, actually, it wasn't it wasn't me who asked the question. It was somebody else. We were in a group of people. Uh, he was at our conference in Florida, the ICFA conference. And somebody said, you know, why do you keep writing Amber novels when it clearly was finished after the first four? And he said, the last time, I needed a swimming pool. Yeah, no, I'm not and, surprised. Uh, cool. I mean, he was very straight about that. Mm -hmm. um, I got, uh, I, there was a mystery writer named Robert Parker I used to know before he died. I mm -hmm. was in several readings with him. And he'd, he, was, he was under contract, uh, I forget who it was, to produce a Spencer novel every year. Yep. And Spencer was every Spencer novel. They would give him a huge advance. They would always hit the bestseller list. They weren't, frankly, very good after the first eight or nine. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and and he knew they weren't very good. Uh, and he, he very openly uh, said to me that uh, I can write a Spencer. All they want from Spencer is uh, fast, uh, funny dialogue, back talk between Spencer and Hawk, and mm -hmm. whatever the mystery is. He said. He said I haven't solved one of my mysteries in the last six or seven novels. That's, that's not the point. <laughs> Uh, but re he knew how to give readers what they wanted. Yeah. He started second series of novels about a detective named Jesse Stone. Uh, yeah. There's been a TV series here in the States about it with who plays Jesse Stone in this series? Uh, Tom Selleck. Okay, yeah. And it's, it's, not, it's not a bad series about a small town sheriff in, in Maine. And I asked him why he started that series. And he said, because, first of all, I can write a Spencer novel in a weekend. Secondly, I just wanted to write something in third person. I'm so tired. Of, I'm so tired of having this wisecracking private eye inside my head. I just wanted to write something where I could say he went to the shore and got a boat. Uh, that's all he wanted to do. And understandable. Here's a, here's one for you though, and I never thought we'd talk about this, but what's the series that never ends that you're happy with? Is there an on-ending series? series that you're, or seemingly on-ending series that you enjoy reading? In other words, do I have a never-ending story that I do, like? And that's you. not it. It's what? not the one. It's as good a book as it was, and it was. But mm -hmm. yeah. Actually, it's worked pretty well. Let me think. Um, I'm not sure that I do have a series like that. Not in terms of a single narrative arc. Sure. There are yeah. worlds... Okay, the, the world which I think I can get hypnotized by again and again, this is going back to short fiction, Yeah. is uh, Cordwainer Smith's Norstralia universe. Oh, uh, now, Gary, that doesn't count, and I'll tell you why. Doesn't it all fits in one? It, it all fits in one book. I'm talking about where you could end up with sixty books on the on the shelf. Well, he died. What's he supposed to do? I mean, he, he could have gone. <laughs> no, but you, you may be immersed, Gary, and I I empathize. I mean, I I adore Smith's work, but mm. seriously, there still is only one book. Or two books. I mean, like decent sized books. So it's not like I'm well, talking about. You know, I'm talking like if a book comes out every year, you'll be lined up to buy it, whether it's online or not. You know, not you know, don't need a real line, but you know what I mean. I don't know that there is. Uh huh. Uh, I mean, uh, when I, I I love the Foundation series, and that's one of those things I loved when I was a kid. Yep. I read all of them. I thought this is really. 
this is really classic science fiction because it's nothing but ideas. You know, I mean, nothing mm -hmm. really happens in it. People talk about things happening, but they don't actually happen. And I remember when Bryn and Benford and oh. Bear, all yep, Nation trilogy, were at the found, and, and I thought, okay. Uh, Bear did something very clever, and and you and, and they all did very clever things, but they didn't do anything new. And pretty soon, I was thinking, okay, I'll read these three. I reviewed all three of them, mm. and and they were fine. But I thought, okay, the Foundation Universe isn't any more interesting than it was when Asimov. And you know, some, and, and 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 there were some attempts to do a series of you know, continuing robot novels. And I think, mm. Yeah, we get Foundation and poultry. I'm out of there. I don't. <laughs> I don't so, foundation and animal. I mean, it just. <laughs> At some point, the universe was used up for me. It had done what yeah. it meant was meant to do. Yes. And um, I think the only thing that comes close to that might be, and I don't know it well enough, is uh, in the world of video gaming. Okay. Where if you get into uh, Call of Duty. Yes. Uh, and there are various scenarios within that, and you can get immersed in those. Okay. I know that from friends, and I know that from my grandkids. Yeah. Uh, I haven't done that. Okay. So I, I don't know how that works. I also don't think that's a narrative in the sense no, no, that we no. think narrative normally. I will tell you my dirty, rotten, cheating answer, which is Terry Pratchett's Discworld. Terry Pratchett's Discworld can do anything. I yeah. know. But, you know, what he's done there is construct a universe in which he can do anything he wants. Yes. He's created, which, if you like, a, a bibliography, something which can mm -hmm. contain – he's created – a world that can create that can contain a bibliography of varied novels. He's contributed. Well, okay, that's that's completely cheating. You realize that? Thank don't you. you. Yeah, that's what I, I do believe. I do believe I in, in fact said here is my cheating answer. Yeah, it's cheating. Well, okay, a world which generates other worlds is indefinitely extensible. Mm -hmm. uh, I think any fantasy writers listening to us should say that. <laughs> but by and large. It's not. It's not as though you're looking at a continuative narr continuing narrative arc. You've got a wonderful story machine there. Mm -hmm. But I will always line up. I have all of them. I have read all of them. I will read anything that he he writes. Uh, I can't think of. Yeah, you know, I even find, and this is sort of one of those things which I think every writer doesn't want to hear. You, there's a life cycle on enjoying a writer quite often as well. You know, you find someone goes from being someone you're kind of interested in to someone who you're passionately devoted to reading everything of to someone who you kind of, you got the idea and moved on. Oh. You don't find that? Um, I'm trying to think of examples. I, I, I just was handed a note that there are, there are actually video games based on Discworld. Yes. Um, which, which indicates to me that, again, there's a, infinitely extensible world there sure. uh but to get back to your question about uh writers that you fall in love with and then at some point feel are used up is that the right word you feel as though you've heard, you've got the idea you've heard the song they're gonna sing and you've enjoyed them and you move on maybe you've ch grown and changed as a person that's all it is maybe they've fallen into a rut whatever it is but you part company and yet you had been an eager advocate for their work at some point or yes i think that's happened um i think i think there i don't know if that's happened with somebody who is just wildly inventive mm -hmm. um it is wildly inventive neil gaiman can be wildly inventive mm -hmm. um there are writers who do what they do very well who i can enjoy their novels two or three times or four or five and after a while you realize I, I know what the routine is, and I know this is going to be okay, but I don't really have to read it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not the same thing as, 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 as losing interest in them. It's, it's, it's a matter of your interest has been fulfilled, and you know what they're going to do. I, the, the example, actually, I would use to go back to Mysteries, to, to go back to Robert mm -hmm. Parker, I, I stopped reading the Spencer novels because I knew exactly what he was going to sure. do. And there'd be funny dialogue in them and that sort of thing. And I think a lot of other people had that feeling, yeah. too. I've got a mystery there's, example, yeah. Okay, you have an example? A mystery example, absolutely. Sue Grafton. Oh, okay. Sue Grafton's Sue, Alphabet Sue Mysteries. Sue Grafton, example. I read yeah, through right. to about K, I think. But by E, I knew everything that it had to do, and I can't conceive of being willing to hold still all the way through to Z. Um, yeah, and I think there's a problem with anybody who sets up a series like that. I mean, it's a great marketing idea. Mm, yeah. Um, and... Um, I, uh, the, 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 yeah, I had some reactions like that as well to, 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 to mystery series, I guess. 
um, I, I, I had that very much reaction to Dick Francis mysteries. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm five or six in, and I'm thinking, okay, horses. Uh, that's it, horses. Yeah, uh, and you're done. Uh, and they're very good. They're very clever. Nice characters, different settings, and so forth. But there's a horse race, and that's <laughs> it's like uh, fine. Um, and I don't think he got any worse as he grew older. I just I just stopped reading them. People who I people who, who people who were addicted to Dick Francis told me that the later novels were more sophisticated. Now here's a difference, and, and it's interesting we're using different genres. Mm-hmm. The, the counterexample I would say in espionage would be, would be John Le Carre. Yeah, because John Le Carre was doing things bizarrely original. Yeah, uh, late in his career. Uh, okay, let's move into fantasy. Somebody in fantasy who I think still can surprise me utterly is Tim Powers. Yes. Uh, I never know. I never know what the next Tim Powers novel is going to look like. Though I have to tell you, can I, I, can I, be her- I could be a heretic. I could be a heretic. I didn't read the last one, Gary. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's heretical. That's, Sorry. that's awful. I mean, I mean, yeah. I, I know. I mean, I know, I'm signed up. It's, you're right. Tim Powers is constantly surprising. He always does. Well, almost always does something different. I mean, uh, the next book does sound like it's a follow-on to um, uh, the stress of her regard, but yeah, the last one I I, I stopped. Well, I don't know if I did or not actually, um, but but he's somebody who's constantly interested in reinventing himself. He yeah. could have redone yeah. uh, his first three or four novels. Actually, one of my favorite novels of his is, I think, his second novel, The, uh, the Drawing of the Dark. I love okay, it. Here's, a current, I love here's a current example of somebody who I think is doing very interesting, courageous uh, things. is China yeah. Mieville. Yes. Uh, because I was, I was about at the point of the Iron Council of thinking, I have seen all of Vosilog I need to see. Yeah. Um, and, and then you start getting things like the city and the city, like Unlondon, like Crocken, mm-hmm. and like now Embassy Town, and especially the last three, the city and the city, Crocken and Embassy Town, are completely different one from the other. Yes. And I'm thinking this is, this is a writer who wants to explore new things, wants to try out different things. Embassy Town, as we've said before, is pure science fiction. It's not the space opera people think it is, but it's, it's Le Guinian, Delanian kinds of science fiction that deals with language. It's a completely different thing from Kraken, which was just a hoot. It was a lot of fun. Um, and The City in the City, which was, you know, intellectually one of the most challenging, neat, cool things he's done. Um, but aren't they all about loving the city, Gary? Well, he does love the city, but I don't have any problem with that because I love cities. Um, I don't necessarily have a problem with it either. But, and I do think he's a very varied writer. And I do think he's switching it up. So I, most, almost, I agree with you almost entirely. But I could sit there and say, to some degree, his subject matter remains the same. It's the city. And Unlondon and Kraken are cousins, if, if any two books of his are. They are. That's true. That's true. And I haven't um, read it. I admit there's the one Mieville novel I've not read is King Rat. And, but I've got a suspicion that King Rat, Unlondon, and um, Kraken are cousins. Just as obviously there's the Baslag trilogy. See, I'm, on mm-hmm. the, I'm undermining what you're saying, even though I kind of agree with you. Well, I mean, I don't. I don't have any problem if, no. if there's a continuing kind of preoccupation or theme in works. I mean, no. you know, Dickens was pretty pretty and he managed to do a lot with that. Mm. Um, and uh, other writers, uh, I'm going back to my Victorian literature grad school days. <laughs> other writers who are equally urban-oriented, like Charles Reed, nobody reads them anymore. Yeah. Uh, so the question is not is, is not whether you return to the same material, but whether you do different things with it. What he does with this, what he does with the idea of the city. Yeah. And the city and the city is completely different from Boslog. Yeah. And when you get to Embassy Town, one of the things I was apprehensive about with Embassy Town, it takes place clearly in a, in a region of a city. Embassy Town is actually a subset of a larger yes. city on an alien planet. And I thought, okay, if he starts turning this into Boslog, I'm going to have a real problem with it. And he didn't. He no, invented the city that was necessary for the theme and, and techniques and concerns he had in that novel, which happened to be largely language. Yes. Um, so, so I, I, yeah, that's something I think is I think I think it's a fair comment that he is fascinated by cities. I think it's also a fair comment that he's learned to do more than one thing with cities. Yes, and it after is the, very. After the first novels after King Rat and the Boslog trilogy, it looked like okay, he kind of had his city thing done. Yeah. <clears throat> There's another thing which I think varies his novels, and we're we're turning this into a love letter to China, I suppose. Well, you are. Uh, there, there are <laughs> things that don't. There are things that don't work. China, stop doing that. 
but it, as a good critic, I won't tell them what it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I'm losing my train of thought now. Well, then, well, and if you're losing your train of thought, let me derail you entirely for a second. Okay, derail me entirely. And, and take us back to Publisher X and say, okay. can you state your own prejudices? I don't think I can. I, you can't state your own prejudices without sounding really awful. Yeah, okay. Uh, a bit pretentious, one of the a bit things, kind of, yeah. Okay. Um, I like well-written sentences okay that sounds really awkward it does sounds... but i'd also say i don't like too many of them well no, no let me re rephrase that i don't like a, a well-written sentence and the only point of the well-written sentence sentence is to show you how well-written the sentence is oh then you're talking about people who have mfas <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> oh we're gonna rotten hell okay we're gonna get in trouble for that uh, <laughs> but that was funny thank you <laughs> well oh, sorry uh, one of the things i do in between reading stuff for locus the one magazine i've read since i was a kid is the new yorker mm -hmm. and the new yorker has the new yorker bears some responsibility for having turned the american short story into something um <laughs> i'm not even going to use an adjective here um uh, <laughs> Michael Chapin essentially said the American short story was kidnapped around 1950. And I think he was right. I mean, it was yeah. kidnapped by Salinger and later by Updike and later by... Um, but by and large, even if you have these... Uh, and, and people... I used to love uh, Ann, 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 Ann Beatty, who was a quintessential New Yorker writer in the 70s. Mm -hmm. No matter how uneventful these stories might be, they're well-written. Uh, yeah. The political reporting in the New Yorker is well-written. I like... I like prose that draws me through it. And that happens in nonfiction. It happens in fiction. Uh, when I see it happen, and, I, and again, we can mention a lot of people who do it. There, oh, here's a good example of somebody who writes really nice sentences, uh, and probably too many of them, is <laughs> Kim Stanley Robinson. Ooh, oh, oh. Yeah, really, yeah. Most of his novels have, a, I mean, I love Stan's work, but he, most I mean, of his novels have a kludgy bit in the middle, too, yeah. He gets a lot of kludge in there. Well, yeah, exactly. His short stories are just brilliant. They're yes. exactly the right length. There's no, uh, there's no fat in them at all to speak of. Uh, they're stories which have nothing on the New Yorker stories I was talking about, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, except except they might also have a plot. Um, but... <laughs> you sure you haven't been drinking the wine, Gary? <laughs> the time this is over. Um, so, uh, Gene Wall. Way to, I think the way to understand style in science fiction, and I expect you to agree with me that because you read far more short fiction, <laughs> is the way to really apprehend some, the best of somebody's style is to read their short fiction. Yeah. Um, when I read The Best of Gene Wolfe uh, uh, last year for the World Fantasy Awards, I was stunned at how many utterly brilliant, perfectly proportioned stories there are. Yeah. And you can see you can see the quality of that writing in his novels, but you can't see it quite as distilled as you can in the short fiction. I think the same thing's true with Stan Robinson. I think one of the reasons that Ted Chang writes at shorter lengths is that he knows that about himself. I think that could be true. Yes, that that that, that resonates as, as an explanation for me. Even though, of course, it only applies to those writers who write a sufficient body of work as short fiction writers. Uh, there's some people who never write much, so you can't tell. But it does seem that writing short fiction distills the essence of the writer in some way and you get to see the presence or absence of depth and consideration in their work more clearly you just see yeah they're, they're written more clearly you know, there isn't as much stuff for them to hide in that you get in a novel so they have to be able, be able to sort right. of perform there and then uh, and that's part of what makes reading short fiction compelling i think so and i i think i i've said this I think I've said this probably in several review columns when you get somebody who doesn't write a lot of short fiction, but you suddenly get a book. Yeah. Uh, this is the way to understand the writer. And a perfect example of this, now that I think about it, is our old friend Tim Powers, yeah. who's written a remarkably small amount of short fiction. Yes. But one of the most perfect stories he's written is a story called Pat Moore. Yes, um, a great story. Which is just, it's, it's, it is a great story. It is possibly a better story in the field of short stories than any single one of his novels is in the field Ooh. of novels. And I love his novels as well. Huh, uh, that's but I think, I think if you want to get the essence of what 
uh, of what Tim Powers can do, a story like that. And they're, they're probably, what, maybe a, a dozen, 15, 20 Tim Powers stories altogether. I'd say there's probably, you'd be around, getting up towards two dozen, but no more than that at tops. Yeah. Because he's, he's a reluctant short story writer, I think. And I know there's going to be one, or, I think there's two new ones in the collection he's got coming out later in the year, which is interesting Excellent. in and of itself. But, um, yes, he, he is a reluctant short story writer for whatever reason. I, I would also say that his earlier story, Night Moves, c- really encapsulates the first half of his career as well, frankly. That's true. That's true. That's excellent example. You know, it uh-huh. shows you all of his interests. Uh, or if you look at his compatriot, a gentleman I've never met but who I've read voraciously uh, over the years, Jim Blaylock. Jim Blaylock, yeah. If you read two of his stories, um, Paper Dragons, which is, I think is a spectacularly wonderful story, and mm-hmm. The Shadow on the Doorstep, which is his, his creepy Lovecraftian story, it's everything you need to know about Jim Blaylock in, oh, I don't know, 30 pages? But the thing is, if you end up uh, reading one of those stories by Jim Blaylock or a story by Tim Powers, you will probably not be disappointed if you turn around and read their novels then. Because oh, no, then no. you'll see what they're doing. You will appre- In other words, the story is a good way to learn somebody's technique. I think that's true. I think, I think that's um, very true. And, and then, then there are writers. Uh, we mentioned Ted Chang, but there, here's another classic example where uh, Howard Waldrop yes. writes almost perfectly crafted stories. Um, his novel was, the one novel of his I read, that uh, dozen tough jobs, was, was fine, but it really seemed to me to be more a group of his stories more or less knitted together in a way. And it's really um, not, not a novel anyway. It's a, a long novella. I mean, well, he's, it really is a long novel, he's, yeah. he's written two... I'm not getting Howard Waldrop geeky. Them, he's written two novels. Them, uh, them, them Bones, uh, which is his only solo novel uh, about the mound builders. And then he also oh, wrote... That I, you did read that, but that was that was one I of the classic. That. Oh, okay, that was one of the classic Terry Carr science fiction specials of the of the mid nineteen eighties. That first batch, which was so incredible, and he also wrote a book called The Texas Israeli War nineteen ninety nine that he co wrote with Jake Saunders. So that's his entire, I mean, entire novel building, writing career. Though he has long threatened these books that he has been tinkering with for twenty five and thirty years. I mean, there's a book called I John Mandeville. That he's been working oh, on. Oh, I've heard about that. Yeah, right. And another oh, book man. called The Moon World. And both of them are now over 25 years in the making. And I have this horrible suspicion, as much as I love Howard's work, that should they ever be finished, they'll be unreadable. Really? I do. I have a suspicion. Because I think it's Howard's approach to things that he takes an idea and he writes it, then he reduces it, then he writes it, then he reduces it, then he writes it, then he reduces it. And it's a brilliant technique for writing short stories. Yeah. But I think it's a lousy technique for writing novels. I think what you get is basically 100,000 words of intense, heady stuff that you just can't ingest. And you also risk, and I mean, he's a skillful writer, but you also risk, with all that distilling at novel length, you lose all kinds of meaning as well. Connection and stuff is whittled away, particularly if the author has been lost in it long enough that they know all the connections, but they're not, they're not stating them anymore. And I think that that's the risk with those books. I'm, I'm, yeah, I almost sort of yeah. don't want them to be published. There's a scene, um, it's, 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 it's in one of, I'm sure it's in one of Tim Powers' novels, and it may be, I can't remember which one it is, actually. But it deals with somebody who's in, who's in a dark room and is drawing a picture on the wall, and he does this repeatedly for years, mm-hmm. and no one has ever seen the... And when, when, when people finally come in to see this picture he's been working on for years, decades, it's, of course, an entirely black wall. He's covered every inch of space yep. With, yep. with the charcoal. And that's exactly what it sounds like you, you, you could do with a, you know, with a Waldorf novel. They could be just... You yes. may be too intense for a novel, which goes back again to some of the points that uh, we've been making. I, uh, I suspect that uh, we will eventually see a novel from Ted Chang and we'll eventually see a novel from Kelly Link and Mary Rickert and so forth. And we've seen novels from Jeff Ford. Mm. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if, if that same dynamic is at work. If you can, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's really a question of sustaining it for a novel. Because all of these people have written lengthy works, which suggests sure. to me, 
of course you can sustain it. But if you can get that same sense of distillation uh, without yeah. it becoming too intense, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, part of me ha- wants to say I really have no particular need to, um, to, to have those books appear. I'm not waiting for a Kelly Link novel. I, I suspect, and I would be interested to discuss it with Kelly, um, that pursuing a novel has messed with her writing rather badly, is my guess. Um, as, as she's gone for m- longer stories with more linear narratives, I think it's there's been something that's changed in her writing. I think that's been a, a bit of a struggle. And then you have, you know, with Ted, Ted does what he does. And I figure everything yeah. that drops out from Ted is something just to be happy about. And I don't really need a Ted Chang novel at all, um, as long as there's more Ted Chang work. And I would say the same of all of them. Well, what, I, what Ted has said, I'm, I'm sure Ted has said this to you, and he said it to me many times, and he said it on panels, that if, if, a, if something comes along that turns into a novel, it'll, that's what it'll be. But, you know, the story, is, the story that comes to him is the one he writes. And yes. so far, the life cycle of software objects is the longest one. It was fine. You know, hmm. it may not have been as challenging and uh, and wildly innovative as some of the others, but it was very good thinking through the issue of software. And I think if he were to write something like that at novel length, it'd be it, it, it'd be excellent. I think the idea of trying to write a novel because everybody wants you to write a novel, because people are throwing hmm. money at you to write a novel, might not be a good idea. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know exactly what the chronology of Margot Lanigan's writing is, but it strikes me that one of the things that might have been an advantage in writing Tender Morsels after, from the point of view of somebody in the States, we had seen nothing but brilliant short stories. We'd not seen the young adult novels. Yes. We'd not seen Tankerman and that sort of thing. But I think the experience of having written those novels before she created this phenomenal reputation with short fiction might have given a kind of structure and discipline to, uh, uh, to Tender Morsels. might have been there otherwise. I think you may be right. I mean, she her chronology is interesting. I mean, I've not gone back and tried to find the romance novels she wrote either. Um, so, I mean, she's written generic, really generic fiction a long time ago and then written these young adult novels. And, of course, it teaches you things about structure, right? You know, just writing something yeah. yourself teaches you about it. So. And I'm sure that colors that and the novel that she continues, even according to Twitter, even now as we speak, to struggle with this uh, mermaid novel that she's fighting into submission. Um, so I mean, yeah, it, it is. It's interesting. I should now shift us somewhere else for a minute, Gary. I'm glad you're doing that because we're getting towards, believe it or not, the end of our birthday podcast. And I did ask listeners if they wanted to on the blog to post about it. And we got, we got three responses. One from Cam in Canada. Doesn't that sound like you shouldn't say it too quickly? And Cam in Canada was very nice. Does all sorts of nice things and asks us for two questions we could we could discuss on the on the um podcast and i suspect we'll discuss them another time we'll try to be fair to cam and actually keep track of them because yeah. one is what's our impression of june as a classic of, of the field and where do we most clearly see its influence and we can come to that and mm-hmm. one about our impressions of new epic fantasy writers in the field you know the scott lynch's and pat rothfusses and those guys so that's mm-hmm. something we could maybe talk about but he's very kind about the podcast so thank you to him and chris mcclelland writes it's hard to believe it's been a year already. I never miss an episode. Look forward to it every week. Here's to many more. A curious thing about listening to the podcast, whenever I read anything by you or Gary, now I hear your voices. Funny that. Which means that you could probably do audio podcasts of your review column, Gary. Thanks for suggesting that. No, it's not going to happen. Um, but you know what? I, I, I'm glad I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad of that because early you were – I mean, in, in a sense, if, if people read us and hear our voices, I think that's terrific. Um, and I, you were earlier mentioning a writer that you didn't want to read because of having yes, yeah. her voice. Um, that can be a very favorable thing too, because in, yes. in Eclipse Four there is a story by Andy Dunn. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, slow, slow Bullet, I believe. Um, is that slow, the title? Slow as a bullet. Yes. Slow as a bullet, which I happened to hear Andy read a year ago in Florida, and I picked up the story and. I, I could not read the story at my normal length of reading because I was reading it in his drawl. <laughs> yeah. I was just I, I just listening to and, and it, he's a wonderful reader. He has an absolutely yeah. terrific he makes better use of the accent and you know the only person that makes use of a similar accent I guess is Terry Bisson now that I think about it. But there there is there is something to connecting a voice to what you read. Yes. Um, some, sometimes it backfires. But one of the things if you happen to be interested in uh, 20th century Irish poetry the one thing you never, ever want to do 
is mm. listen to a recording of W.B. Yeats reading his poetry. <laughs> Why? Is it it's awful? awful. <laughs> well, it's... some people are. Some people are. I mean, uh, I never understood Garrison Keillor till I heard him. I didn't find it funny until I heard him read you it. You can't read it. Then it's exactly. hilarious. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and on the other hand, I heard C.J. Cherry give a reading once, which almost drove me from her work as much as I like it because it was so terrible. It was just flat and monotonous. So it is. Mm. Or, or, or Stephen King. I had Stephen King reading the a tape of Stephen King reading uh, The Dark Tower of the Gunslinger. And it was awful. It was dreadful. Really? Yes. Flat, monotonous. Just oh, awful. Um, so, yeah, you know, it can, it can, yeah, it's important. Okay, so, and there's one other. So one last third, one. The third question, yes. Tansy Rayner Roberts of Tasmania writes, Hi, Jonathan and Gary. As one of your three fairy grandmother, or godmothers from galactic suburbia, I've enjoyed muchly your year's worth of podcasty goodness. You generally keep me company as I'm zooming around the supermarket on the weekend, having left my family at home to strangle each other in my absence, which mine are currently <laughs> doing as an aside. I enjoy the perspective you both provide on the industry and the glimpse at all the insider knowledge you have packed away inside those skulls of yours. While we do not always agree, and I occasionally do find myself arguing fervently with you both, generally in the pasta aisle, my weekend would still not be the same without you. So happy birthday, Cood Street Podcast. I will raise a virtual glass of wine to Gary and a virtual cup of coffee to Jonathan. Keep on rambling, Tansy. Kiss, kiss, kiss. So there you go. Was it, was, it was a Tansy or a Lisa who said we should have T-shirts made. Yes. Is that yes. a Lisa's idea? Uh, no, it was somebody. One or the other, yes. Somebody's. Yes, in front of it would be. The front of it would say, Gary, we're rambling again. Yes. And the other one would and be... What was the... the other one, which is great. I love it because it's true. Cood Street. Mm. Always certain. Often correct. Yes. Which I think oh, is well, great. It's, it's, it's one of the things that I'm glad that Tansy disagrees with us. I'm glad that our friend the publisher disagrees with yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it goes back to the point of... Uh, first of all, we are, we are... The two of us together have a massive impressive and erroneous understanding of the field <laughs> sure of course I and i'm willing to defend that until somebody corrects me yes but the whole point is well actually what i was going to say about it as well and it's probably to the point is that what lies at the core the core of these podcasts we've been doing for for a year now is a discussion uh and we are discussing we are discovering as we go and um Discussing it with other people is just as important and is part of it. I have n no suspicion at all that I know everything about the field or that I'm always correct. I'm always firm, but I'm not always correct. Um, and so I enjoy, I, I love the, the dialogue we have, but I also love the dialogue with you know, the, you know, the broader field that we have encountered as a result of it across the 60 hours of podcast or something that we've recorded. Because it means we do have a dialogue with Tansy and Elisa and Alex and the rest of the field. And you know, the, the fact that we know that Jeff's listening, the fact that we know we can bring Farah in to help deepen our understanding somewhere. And it's something we'll probably do more of in the future. I love it. I think, I think that's, that's what makes it fun. I mean, there's, there's no preparation, so we might as well work something out while we're going. If you get to the point where you don't fear... If you feel you're not learning new things about the field anymore, then you should get into a different field as far as I'm concerned. Well, yeah, I mean, much I've been uh, – next year, uh, you, you at some point figured out how many columns I'd written and it was mm. less. But at some point next year, next a year from December will be my – no, let me think. Yeah, a year from December will be my 20, 20 years of uh, mm -hmm. reviewing for locals. Yeah. And – People want to know how you can do that. Well, you know, what the way you can do that is people keep writing really interesting new stuff. If I were, if I had seen, okay, I'm going to sound a little bit uh, unkind at the moment, but <laughs> if I had been for those 20 years reading nothing but analog, yes. I think I would have gone to, I think I would have gone to <clears throat> vampires and romances, and <laughs> maybe, maybe Hyatt Regency romances. I don't know. Anything but at some point, I, I, I take your is, point. This is not, yeah, the point is it's, it's, it's a yeah. field that does not cease to surprise you. It's a field which is broad enough now to cover multiple tastes. And I think it's something you pointed out uh, a number of times on the podcast, that, uh, that 50 years ago, people could pretty much read all the science fiction and fantasy that was published as genre. Mm. And now, not only is it impossible to do that, but nobody wants to. That's nobody true. wants to try to read everything and every other no, field. No, you I, can't. I, I, did, I, did, I did try to read um, uh, Twilight. Um, <clears throat> and... 
cured me of wanting to read Twilight. I mean, <laughs> yes, fine. I hope they enjoy it. I hope it's at some point. I hope they'll realize that there are really interesting vampires out there. Mm-hmm. That's us. And Cood Street. Cood Street, a voyage of discovery. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm not uh, gonna. We're not gonna. We're not gonna do a Star Trek thing here. No. 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 Not the least because of, eventually we have to let these these people go, but um. It's been an interesting year. I mean, really, I have enjoyed it. The early podcasts are interesting, clunky old things, and I never go, like you, I never go back and listen to them, but I'm really glad we've done them. It's been really fun. Well, that sounds valedictory, but we're not stopping yet. No, 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 no. No. Okay. Th- this, this is kind of like an anniversary week for me, you know, because I've got a year's worth of Cood Street. Tuesday, I finished, I, I got to 25 years at my day job. Excellent. <gasps> And then um, I think next year's 15 years with Locus for me. Really? Yeah, yeah. So you'll be. Uh, also, you're, it's interesting. You'll be coming on 15 years about the same time I'm coming on 20. And also, I think I think May next year will be 10 years as reviews editor. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> so there you go. In fact, this is probably about nine years as reviews editor as well. About this week, because it was the I think the May issue was the first one that had my. That I, that I was reviews editor for about then. So so there you go. It's should, anniversary it's, times. And speaking of anniversaries, and one that I, did we miss this? But it seems to me that Galactic Suburbia must have had their first birthday before we did. We talked about it. Gary, you've been drinking. We did. They had cupcakes and everything. Okay. There was happiness. And they had cupcakes, absolutely. Cupcakes, totally. Goodness. They had, and they, they had, had a t-shirt because they're organized. I even, I, I, no, you're absolutely right. I even had, but did we congratulate them specifically on this podcast? We did. We can do it again because, honestly, they're lovely people, but they're egotistical. They like to be thanked. So we can thank them again if you wish or just say happy birthday for then, fairy godmothers well, from there. Yeah, yeah, we should thank them once every two or three weeks. Yeah, but let's cut it down to that, Gary. It was going to be a bit over the top, really. I mean, how much do we – I mean, really, what, 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 one, once every few weeks? Is that the, the limit? Three weeks. Okay, three weeks. Okay, once three, every three Okay, three weeks. Okay. Yeah, they, they, and they can remind us of it. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they will. I expect to get email now, Gary. I do expect to get email. And oh, I know. We're gonna. I, I, I'm. Yeah, fine. It's watch it's, Twitter. It's, it's gonna get ugly. I fear the lamentation of the women. You don't get you the reference deal to you. With that. You know, that is your line to deal with. I mean, you you said the lamentation of the women. I did not. Uh, people in galactic suburbia. I did not say that. <laughs> But you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's all, I love it. Uh, I was up, up I was up late last night, listeners, and I I had a terrible incident incident with my uh, bottle of Lafroig, where the cork broke off in the neck of the bottle, and it left me with another other opportunity option but to go to the other bottle of Lafroig and drink it instead. And um, I found Conan the Bar- Barbarian the musical on YouTube. And it's hilarious. (laughs) It's two and a half minutes long. It's a clip (laughs) taken from uh, the John Milius Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan thing, reduced down to the whole story. And it's all sung in a voice of like partly Conan the Barbarian, partly Schwarzenegger, partly Elmer Fudd. And the chorus is, hear the lamentation of the women. It's a terrible earworm. It really is, and I love it. It's great. It's awful. It's so. It's and part of me goes, you know, the outrage is, the Ray Bradbury short film from YouTube got up onto the Hugo ballot, but the lamentation of the women should have been there, at least on the World Fantasy ballot. Maybe we should do that. <gasps> Maybe we should vote for that. Anyway, we should do also a plug for Pumsy, which is the Kenyan yes, science fiction. Yes, absolutely. Book. I saw Neil talking about it today as well. Yeah, but uh, as a general rule. Um, if Lefroig sends you to YouTube, I'd sort of cut down on the Lefroig, maybe. <laughs> well, it was <laughs> it's like, it was late on Friday night, Gary. I'd already watched you for it. Seriously, I'm going to have a week now that you've got an unusable bot- bottle of Lefroig there. I mean, have you got like a glass saw or something that you could? No, have I told you? My, I have a plan. I, this is my plan. See what you think. I have several bottles of Lefroig, about four or five of them actually, but. I've got a bottle of 15-year-old Lefroig and a bottle of cask-strength Lefroig. The cork is broken off in the neck of the bottle of the cask-strength, right? Now, the 15-year-old is about a quarter of a bottle left. 
So what I figure is I'll finish the bottle of 15-year-old, then take its cork that it doesn't need anymore, carefully remove the, the cork from the bottle of cask strength, and use that cork. So you're pushing the cork down into the bottle in order to make room for the new cork? No, what I thought or I would... I thought I would do is I'd get a little screw, screw it into the top of what's left of the uh, thing, then use a pair of pliers to lift it out. Okay. I'm overthinking this, isn't am I? This is like now 10 minutes of our podcast talking about saving my scotch, <laughs> which is appropriate when you think about it. Your podcast, the, the, the Pood Street Codcast, or whatever we call this thing. <laughs> Gary, you don't want to think? Three, this is three weeks devoted to cork excavation. Let's hope um, not. <laughs> Well, we have a whole new set of listeners there, I suppose. <laughs> but an awful lot less of the other ones. You know what I think? Uh, yeah. I think we may I think, have... I, think, I yeah. think we've kind of celebrated too long here. I was going to say, I think we may have wandered as far down Cood Street today as we're going through, don't you think? <laughs> and that maybe, in, just, just out of respect for everybody else, we should just wind it up. Call it, call it a Call it a birthday. And cast our eyes forward to a whole new year of happy podcasting i think i think we should we should uh, treat next week as as important as this because next year next week is the inaugural podcast of the second year of cood street which I <laughs> absolutely so and we, we can talk about the coming nebula awards weekend that you'll be going to i think and Gary i don't think the Neb- what you going you're not going to the nebs i don't think i'm going to the nebs i may go to the locust awards okay okay well, on that spectacularly happy note, let's close it and uh, happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. I'll talk to you next week, Gary. All right. Talk to you then. Okay, bye.